0: All right, well, we're continuing in our series on relationships this morning, Um, just to look backward for a second. And we talked about kind of two key things that are both wonderful, and they're also obstacles in our relationships. Um, The first thing is that we're all in need of renewal. We're all in need of renewal. We're all in need of, of change and healing. Whether we've come to Christ or not, we're in need. If we're in Christ, if we have a relationship with him, Jesus has loved us and saved us, and now we're a part of a process that the scripture calls sanctification. Or Paul writes about it in Romans 12, he talks about us being renewed in our minds. And so that's a wonderful thing because we're growing and we're changing. But guess what? Being in relationship as a broken person, in relationships with other people who are in the journey of being changed, that's gonna make things difficult, isn't it? It's gonna be challenging. And so, and so yet God says it's important for us to be in relationship. But the second factor equally can contribute to challenges in relationships. And that's the fact that we're different. We're different. Like all of our dis- differences, some of our differences are sin-based and it's just the struggles of life. But some of our differences are God-given. They're beautiful and they're beneficial. And just in our diversity, it makes things challenging. But God calls us to embrace that diversity to celebrate it, and he says it's worth it for the body of Christ to come together, all looking a little bit different because we need one another, we're a part of a whole. And so that does make things challenging, but often we think, if we're not careful, we can associate um, certain challenges that we face in relationships thinking that's something the other person is doing wrong instead of realizing this might just be the unique challenges of being wired a little bit different. And so those are two challenges that we face. And yet God says, this is good for you. It's good for you as you're in the process of growing and changing um, to grow together. And it's good for you to learn, to embrace and celebrate your differences because you're going to mutually benefit one another in the ways that he's made us. And so those are some things we face. And so then we began to unpack pillars of healthy relationships, just core things that help us walk in healthy relationship with one another. And so this morning, we're going to continue on kind of looking at, at three sort of contrasting things um, that if we get these wrong, if we, if we get these out of balance, man, it just, it, it throws off our relationships big time. But if we come and submit ourselves to Christ and ask him to guide us in these three things, they can be revolutionary in our relationships. And so I'm excited to jump into this. So if you want to turn and follow along, we're going to be in a familiar passage in Luke chapter 15, This is the story that's commonly referred to as the story of the prodigal son. Um, But we are not primarily looking at this passage through the lens of the gospel of redemption, although redemption is all over what we're gonna talk about. What we're really gonna do is we're gonna look at all three characters in this story, the younger brother, the elder brother, and the father. And we're gonna look at each of these three um, to kind of mine out some key relational things that we all need. So let's pray one more time and let's invite the Lord through his word um, to talk to us today. Can we do that? So Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for your word, the scripture, God, that has been breathed out by you. Thank you for the gift of these words that give us everything we need. God, you tell us this is useful for everything that we need in life to grow in our relationship with you, to learn to navigate life with one another, and so, Holy Spirit, we are asking you to come and make these words come alive in our heart. Would you be our teacher and our guide? Or would you help us to understand what you're, you're saying this morning to us about relationships? But Lord, would you, would you get really personal with us? Would you help us to see specific things that you wanna put your finger on in our lives today? God, encourage us where we need to grow. Thank you for your grace. Lord, if we see something in this today that, that convicts us a bit, that hurts a little bit, God, I thank you that you, you never put your finger on those things to shame us, to guilt us, to beat us up, but instead to remind us that in you there's hope, there's change, there's healing. And so may we hear any correction this morning as your invitation to grow. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, the first thing we're going to talk about this morning is lust or love. Lust or love. And we're going to pick this up uh, with the beginning of the story. So Luke 15, verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. The younger son's ongoing issue in this story is his unmet and disordered desires. His unmet and disordered desires. The issue is he was operating more out of lust than love. Now, if you're like me, when you hear the word lust, you probably immediately think of like a, a sexual component, like a sexual sin, a sexual desire. Lust certainly can apply to that category, but it, it, it moves outside those bounds. That kind of falls within the scope of lust. I love the way Dave Buring defines the difference between lust and love. Um, in, his, in his book that many of us are going through, the Discipleship Journey book, he, he says this, Lust is a desire to use someone selfishly for my own gratification and purposes. I want to read that again. Listen to this. Lust is a desire to use someone selfishly for my own gratification and purposes. Love sacrificially gives while lust only takes what it can get. Now, we could spend a whole sermon, much less a whole sermon series on this very large issue. That is a a decades, centuries, millennia long human problem. And it is a huge issue in the culture of our day. And that is that we are obsessed with our desires. We demand that they must be fulfilled. And in fact, The law that is currently ruling in our culture is the law that it is evil to deny people their desires. And so we will rewrite and redefine what is right and what is wrong simply based upon the law that my desires be fulfilled. Now, we might be able to see that on like a big macro level with really hot button issues that we feel really strongly about. But guys, we just do this with like basic American greed. Like we will base our entire lives around getting our desires met by achieving a certain level of status, the way people view us or if I can just save up for that, that thing, if I could just get past this, this barrier that I'm trying to break through financially, if I could just have, like it, it permeates our culture. And, and then we even say things like, we try to justify being driven by our desires by thang, saying things like, well, if it doesn't hurt anyone else, then what's wrong with what I do in the privacy of my own home? That assumes a lot. First of all, who determines what causes hurt? Well, that doesn't hurt anybody else when I do that, live that way, think that way. How do you know? Secondly, it also tries to twist this and say, well, if it doesn't hurt anyone else, then why does it hurt anything? Well, what if it hurts you? What if it's damaging you? And then guess what? If it damages you, you will turn around and damage other people see, what if getting all of our desires met is actually harmful to us and others? Anybody in here ever parented a two-year-old? Do you think it is a good idea for every two-year-old's desire to be met? No. But surely by the time we've reached some level of maturity, you know, in my twenties and my thirties, surely by the time I'm 50, you know, my desires have been completely, you know, they're healthy, they're balanced, they're godly. I mean, by then all of my desires, they totally should be met because they're on track. They're great. This isn't just a two-year-old problem. It's a human problem. Lust versus love. See, what happens is when, when we worship the God of our desires, Instead of choosing love, and see, that's the funny thing, right? Our culture loves to talk about love. But what we usually mean is lust. What we usually mean is getting what I want, getting what I desire, not being denied what I desire. That's why I said this is about that the young man had unmet desires or disordered desires. Things were out of proportion. He wanted to use his dad to get his inheritance. Now, maybe you've already heard this before, you're aware, but even in our culture, we have some sense of this. You don't get your inheritance till what happens? Somebody dies. And that culture was even a bigger deal because your inheritance was mostly property it was mostly the land that you owned and the, maybe the cattle that you owned or the sheep that you owned. And so to say to your father, I want what's coming to me when you die, literally means I could really care less whether you live or die. I just want your stuff. And I don't even care that this diminishes your legacy because it's gonna be scandalous for you to go into town and start selling off our family's heritage so I can go get my desires met. If we, if we leaned in a little bit more in the story, we would even see like when the son returns home, he's still returning home with some pretty messed up desires. <laughs> he's just, he doesn't have anywhere good to sleep or anything good to eat. And so he goes home just to negotiate with his dad. Hey, can I get a job here so that I can be well-fed, have a place to sleep? Now, Paul gives us uh, uh, an interesting example about this um, it, this may seem odd to you, but I think it 's really important because he 's addressing the issue of being like a single person and and also being in a marriage relationship, and he talks about it in the context of, of being under Christ. and so I think it's, it gives an interesting perspective on our our desires being ordered properly, love being put in its proper place. So check this out. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning verse 32. And in the context of this, Paul's even talking about his own choice to live like a celibate single lifestyle. Um, And so here we go. He says to the Corinthians, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. So he's talking about like kind of the pull of, of what's my focus on See, Paul says at the end of all, after he gives kind of his opinion about why he's chosen to be single and, and kind of like, I'm having the single focus of my life being on Christ. And from his perspective, he's going, hey, I just feel like marriage, not that you can't honor God in that, but man, it, it, there's a lot that goes into that and it would pull me away. But then at the end of it, he says, listen, this really isn't about what's better. It's not about whether it's better to be single or better to be married. He said, the real point is for your benefit so that you can understand that things need to be in a proper, good order. That the real point is to be undivided in our devotion to Christ. Listen, all of love is about this being right, primary and in order, and then I have some chance to get these right. When we get this out of order, our natural inclination is to get what I can out of these relationships. How am I benefiting? What am I getting out of this? And see, Paul's point has something really important that like as a single person you need to hear, like those problems don't go away when you're suddenly married. Like we don't spend our lives single going, gosh, I'm just, I have this unfulfilled desire that I long to be met. I long to experience that that closeness, that intimacy, that lifelong companion to be with. And then you try you get married and and many married people will test like, man, this not only didn't solve that, that made things even more complicated. Not only do I have a hard time making myself happy, I have a really hard time making this other person happy too. It makes things more challenging, but it's because, (laughs) it's because things are disordered. See the reality, what the Lord wants us to understand is Everything you need is found in him and his great love for you. Paul's testifying to say, nothing is lacking in my life as a single man. I have a a rich, full, rewarding life just being who I am in Christ. And I have a multiplicity of relationships that are beautiful, family relationships, friendships, church community, where there is mutual love and exchange there. Like marriage is wonderful. It's God-ordained. It's not the end-all, be-all moment of everyone's life. Our fulfillment's to be in Christ. And so his encouragement is if you're single, embrace not being drawn by your desires, embrace the love of Christ. Love others around you well. Be fulfilled singly in him. Jesus had no lack of love in his life. He loved the father well. He experienced the love of the father. He had close relationships. He lived a single life. Paul was the same way. If you're married, it is equally as important that we embrace love as a sacrificial act to prefer my spouse above myself. When I realize marriage isn't about my ultimate fulfillment, it's another opportunity for me to walk out the expression of the love of God. We'll get to it more in a minute, but like Paul describes marriage that way as a picture or an example of the great love relationship we have with God, his incredible sacrificial love towards us. See, here's the bottom line when it comes to disordered love the secret of all relationships. And I would even propose to you the solution to much of our struggle with sin is about learning to love. So many of our struggles would be resolved if we learn to love. And it really boils down to two things, loving sacrificially and loving in the proper order. You know, I I say things like, I love my wife. I, I say to friends of mine, man, I love you, buddy. I look at a good cheeseburger and I say, man, I love cheeseburgers. The problem is when those things get all out of order. When the God of my desires gets placed above the beauty of loving people made in God's image. Love is about willing the good of someone else. And things fall into place when we love in the correct order. I was made to know and receive and experience God's sacrificial love. And when that love is in proper order, then I can learn from him to love others sacrificially. This isn't, this isn't like a, hey, I heard the sermon, got it. I'll stop living lustfully and I'll start living just full of sacrificial love. Like this is, This is a way of life and we need help with it. Like God, I need your help to change me and transform me to be the kind of person who instead of is constantly aware of the way my needs are not met, that instead, God, I'm living in such a way to recognize how you, you meet my needs. You love me well. I look to your love and then you help me love others well, in the proper order, sacrificially. Number two kind of flows right out of number one. If number one was about lust or love, number two is about being served or being submitted. Being served or being submitted. We're gonna look now, we're gonna skip through a bunch of the story and go down to where the older brother shows up on the scene. And so we're picking this up. The younger brother has returned home. The father is thrilled. A huge party is being thrown on his behalf. Um, and the older son catches wind of what's going on. This is now verse 25 in Luke 15. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. See, the the son had been living in a relationship of his own making where he served in the expectation of being served. He had, a, he had kind of a manipulative viewpoint in this relationship. Like, I, yeah, I have faithfully served you, but like my expectations of what I'm expecting to get out of this, I'm not receiving that back. And so while he may have faithfully served his father, his heart wasn't submitted to his father. He knew nothing of his father's love, right? He's completely missed point number one. He's thinking, I've got this right. My younger brother is out there being driven by his lustful desires. He even tacks on to him, wasting his money on prostitutes. Now, we, the, the text doesn't say. Maybe that's accurate. Like maybe the report had come back and his brother had been living that way. Or maybe he just made a lot of assumptions about how his brother had been living. We don't know, but he's viewing relationships through the lens of, of, of using them. Even under the guise of like, I'm serving but like also like you're not serving back. You're not matching my level of service. And see, as we begin to move into loving sacrificial relationships with one another, one of the things that might happen is we start, might start to recognize like, hey, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. There's a lot of things I'm doing for my spouse. I'm a pretty good brother. I'm a pretty good employee. And then we, then we begin to start, you know, keeping lists. I mean, maybe it's just me. But like, I'm aware of all these ways I'm serving and going at the extra mile, but I'm also aware of ways others are falling short and doing that for me. And what's at the root of that, it's an attitude of, I want to be served instead of choosing to just be submitted. Again, quoting um, from the Discipleship Journey book, Dave Buring here on submission. The obsession to demand that things always go our way is one of the greatest bondages in society and the church today. Submission is the ability to lay down this compulsion. It's just another another form of demanding that our desires be met, demanding that things go my way. And so when things aren't going my way, like in an employment opportunity, I can look at my boss and go like, I'm not being treated right, I'm not being treated fairly, like this is like an abuse or oversight of authority. Somebody else is being preferred over me and just this demand to get our way. And then we justify all kinds of behaviors and attitudes that flow from that. But submission is the ability to lay that down. We see this perhaps in no bigger way than, than a really common passage that, that we know in Ephesians chapter five. Paul's writing about marriage relationship. And he says in Ephesians 5, through 25, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. How many of you know that verse just always gets pr- applied in like a beautiful, God-honoring way, never used to control or manipulate people? Okay. Verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's amazing how often we take these verses and we use them to control someone else or to justify our own behavior. We'll spend time arguing about well, what's Paul really saying here? Is he just promoting like husbands just having their thumbs on their wives and the wife is just the lowly submissive servant all the time? Is that what he's doing? And, and like, we'll argue about what these mean instead of just coming to the table and going, what am I being asked by God to do? As a husband, I'm being asked to live in such a loving sacrificial way like Christ did. Well, what did Christ do? He died. He died. or wives coming and going, Lord, like we all are called to submit to you, to your leadership, to your lordship. And so what does it look like for me to humble myself and go, God, I'm gonna submit in this relationship. See, if we read it properly, what we're gonna see is is Paul is painting a picture of a mutual relationship of love, of honor, of respect, of submission, It's a beautiful picture of two people laying down their life for the other. But it exposes the sin that's bubbling below the surface that looks to be served. My wife is not living up to her end of this bargain. My husband is not living up and then we can justify then not doing our part. But the invitation is to submit. Now, the Bible describes um, all kinds of relationships where we're called to be submissive. This passage is in marriage. It's described regarding parenting, like kids submitting to their parents. The scripture talks about submitting to government and the officials that he's placed in authority over us. We're told to submit to employers and even to church leadership. Listen, friends, there is no doubt that there are abuses of authority, no doubt. But far too often, we are way too quick to assign abusive authority to give us the excuse to stop submitting to God-ordained authority that he's placed in our life. The the scripture makes some things really clear where something would be out of balance, out of order, unhealthy. and, And then there is opportunity to make a change but we're way too quick because we're not getting our way. We don't like the circumstances we find ourselves in to justify what really is just a lack of submission to God-ordained authority. And see, the problem is that's so permeated our lives and our culture's lives that this is how we treat God. There there are things in scripture still to this day that are challenging for me. There's things I look and go, man, it'd be so much easier if that wasn't in there. I would love it if just, God, could you just change that one? But the arguments we make about believing in God at all or whether or not to believe the God of the scripture is we put ourselves in the place of authority and say, he should be bowing down to what I say is right and wrong. So many problems would be solved if we just said, God, I may not understand this. I don't know where you're coming from here, but, but you're God and I'm not. And so I'm going to submit to your direction, your leading, your authority. God, if you can help me get there, if you can give me some wisdom and some understanding, that would be great. At the very least, God, would you help me walk this out? This is hard. And watch the transformation that may take place. I've been reading a really powerful book the last couple weeks about about this guy who— Uh, throughout his teenage and early 20 years um, was living a gay lifestyle and was actively like a gay activist. And without seeking it, looking for it, whatever, he had a radical encounter with Jesus. And he went through a years long journey of trying to understand who he was and how that played out with what's in scripture. And it was a journey from, I can't unpack it all in one service. But what was powerful is is every step of the way, God just began to invite him into this, this relationship with him. And at each step, it really just boiled down to this issue of submission. God, will I just submit this to you? Will I take your word at face value? Will I trust that you love me as I am with all these struggles and desires and everything else that you love me? and that you have a plan for my life. And so he just, he just said, God, I will submit my life to you. And it was a process, it was a journey. I think he would even still say he's on a journey, but he just reached a point where he's like, God, this is who you are, this is what you say, and you have my best interest at heart, and you're God and I'm not. And he submitted his life. It was incredible to read. The book's called A War of Loves, if you want to check it out. Um, a powerful picture of this, of just choosing to say, God, instead of trying to justify myself to get what I want, will I submit my life into your hands? And then, Lord, these relationships that you put me in, where where I'm called to be under the authority of another, God, as I submit to you, would you help me submit to this person? What that should produce in us, if we walk this out, is when we find ourselves in a position of authority that we will have some understanding of how difficult it is to submit and that it would cause us to love and to lead the way Jesus did. See, this is how Jesus describes authority. Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to him and said, he's talking to his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus lived out fully what he called them to. And then he encouraged them to go and do the same. Whatever level of authority God gives us, we're called to come as servant leaders who lay our lives down on behalf of others. Man, this is hard. Anybody like into this and go, man, this is challenging. This challenges me. But by God's grace, we can walk this out. By God's grace, I can, I can watch him transform me on this journey that I'm on from being driven my, by my desires to being driven by sacrificial love. From demanding that I be served to choosing to submit and serve and love well. Last point, am I focused on being fulfilled or am I focused on being committed? Let's take a look at the father for just a minute. I want you to see how the father just gives throughout this story to his sons. We're just gonna kind of hit these quickly. I'm gonna read multiple parts of the story here. First, he gives to both sons, back in verse 11 and 12. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, give me the property that is coming to me. And the father did it. He divided his property between them. He gave. Moving on. The father forgives and embraces his younger son. This is uh, from verses 20 through 24. Uh. We'll read verse 20 and then skip down to 22. And he arose and came to his father, talking about the younger son. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. But the father said to his servants, he's ignoring his son's speech. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. You see the level of commitment he gives to his sons. He sees his son a long way off. What does that mean? He was watching for him to come home and he wasn't ready with his speech to blast him. He was ready to embrace him. He was committed to the well-being of his sons, to loving them. Even in the interaction with the angry elder brother, watch how the father handles it. Verse 28, and then verses 31 and 32. But the elder son was angry and refused to go in. So the father came out and entreated him, pleaded with him, begged him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Throughout the entire context of this story, story, there is no evidence of the father ever being fulfilled by his sons. Now that doesn't mean it didn't ever get that way later, but in this story, there was never a moment where it's like, there's my, my boy loving me well, loving his brother well, doing the right thing, making me proud. He was just in the position of being committed to love them well. He wasn't waiting to be fulfilled as a father by having these incredible sons. Far too often, we are looking for ultimate fulfillment through the relationships that we have with others. Instead of recognizing the relationship that we have with others is an opportunity to be committed to love them well. But see, if I haven't found ultimate fulfillment in him, if I don't realize that that's where it comes from, then I'm gonna be lost trying to find it in others. And see, this is how all of this stuff gets out of sort. Because if I'm trying to fulfill, find fulfillment in others, then my needs aren't getting met, I'm gonna feel like I'm not being served. And then I'm gonna justify living a lustful life and going and getting my desires met some other way. And we find ourselves justifying all kinds of broken ways of living because we haven't, we've got this backwards we're looking to find fulfillment in relationships here instead of saying, this is about being committed. How can I be a committed and faithful friend? How can I just be committed in parenthood even when it just feels like exasperating, exhausting, hopeless at times? God's called me to be committed and faithful in that. Committed, not fulfilled. Couple verses here and then we'll wrap things up. How can we move from living like these two sons to embracing the Father's way of love. I want you to check this out. This is from Philippians chapter two. Paul's writing to the Philippians and in verses one through four, he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. So he says, if you're drawing those things from Christ, if you're getting encouragement, comfort, if you're participating in this relationship with the spirit of God, Then he says, verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Let the mind that is in Christ become our mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others committed to sacrificial love. How is this even possible? Thank God for the verses that follow. Verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Multiple times right here in just Philippians 2, we see this phrase, in Christ. That phrase is used over 90 times in the New Testament. Those very simple to say two words are the key to the whole thing. There is something powerful, beautiful, necessary that is available to us to learn to love well. And it's found in Christ alone. It's found in only him. He is the secret being rooted and grounded in Christ. Paul goes on in Philippians 4 and describes this this way. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's saying, I've just made a decision to rely upon Christ. This is earned. He said, I've walked all of these different hard roads, all of these different situations, and I've just learned in those situations to go, help. Like, that's what he's saying. He's using his, you know, big Paul, long sentences, big words. But he just boils down to, he he says, I say, help. God, on my own, I can't do this. But in you, it's possible. In you, all things are possible. And so this is the beauty of just learning to rely upon Jesus. Friends, if we would realize when we find ourselves in these hard circumstances, where my desires aren't being met, where where I feel like I'm pouring out and I'm not receiving back, or I feel like I'm not finding fulfillment in my relationships in my life, to just step back and go, God, I need you. That actually the difficulty of loving in this relationship presents the very opportunity that helps me experience the love of God. God, this thing that is so hard right now, God, it's an opportunity to lean in and receive and experience your grace and your help in this situation. And so step by step, moment by moment, little by little, we learn to rely on him and we grow. I love love this quote by John Piper. I've loved it for years. You may may know it. He just simply says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Our, Our sin, our flesh might tell us that we have all of these unmet desires, but the reality is there is a desire that sits behind all of that. And it's a desire that can only be met and only fulfilled in Christ. And he freely gives it. That's the good news. That's the gospel. He gives freely. I wanna close with this verse, 2 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. The love that this world is looking for is in Christ. And because of who he is and what he has done for us, when we choose imperfect as we will be, when we choose to rely upon him every step of the way in our relationships, whether we realize it or not, we are carrying the fragrance of God's great love. And the church needs it, is what Paul's saying, and the world needs it. And we get to choose to share that with one another. And like the beauty of what Alex paused to note after Andrew shared his testimony is true. Andrew's no perfect guy. He'll be the first to tell you that but he loves Jesus. He loves his wife and he loves his kids and he's loved his parents and he's loved his siblings. And even probably in ways that he'll never fully understand, at least this side of heaven, there was an aroma. And you know, you can only smell that good food cooking in the kitchen for so long before you got in and got to get a bite. I'm a notorious like sneak a bite before it makes it to the table. Amy's got to look at me sideways if I just wander into the kitchen while she's cooking. That's the love of God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. May we do that. And then may we carry that aroma with us into our relationships. Amen. Amen.